0: Coming up on the Scott Thompson Home Show Podcast. A suspect has been arrested in that Ancaster attack on a Muslim family. Why is the Green Party imploding? How do we address home affordability in Canada? It's all coming up. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML.
1: I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Sorry I missed yesterday. I had a hot date on the patio. Thanks for the fill in, Will. It's
2: the Scott Thompson Home Show here. Scott Thompson!
0: Ah. I guess we know who's getting paid and who isn't. Uh, priorities to follow. Good afternoon. It is 1211 and it's 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Willers Erskine, back at the station, keeping the Scott Thompson home show between the pipes. Feel free to jump into the combo. Uh, yeah. Uh, feel free to jump into the combo. Love to hear from you. Lots of ways to do that. Uh, Facebook and Twitter, you'll find the podcast edition of the commentary there. Love to hear from you. Send us a note via the website, Scott Thompson at 900chml.com. Of course, uh, we certainly know the story that the, uh, that the, the uh Disgusting story, uh, coming out of the Meadowlands in Ancaster where, uh, a Muslim, uh, family were, uh, going about their business and ended up in a, uh, altercation. Here is what happened. Here's Lisa's, uh, Lisa Pulesky's report, Global News 900 CHML.
1: Hamilton police say the mother and daughter were almost hit by a vehicle in a parking lot in the Meadowlands in Ancaster on Monday night when the driver allegedly began uttering threats and using anti-Muslim slurs. When they tried to run away and hide, police say he tracked them down and threatened to kill them. Fatima Abdallah of the National Council for Canadian Muslims says these kinds of incidents have only increased since the horrific terror attack on a family in
2: London. It seems as though um, there's a new attack every week and and enough is enough and, and it's about time that uh, we turn these calls into real tangible change in policy.
1: A 40-year-old Hamilton man has been arrested and is facing multiple charges including three counts of uttering threats to cause death and two counts of assault with a weapon. Lisa Pileski, 900 CHML News.
0: All right let's bring in Jabet Mirza, president of the Muslim Association of Hamilton and is with us now. Jabit, thank you so much for the time. Hope you're doing well.
3: Yeah, fine, Scott. Thank you.
0: So, uh, have you, first of all, how is the family? Have you been in contact with the family at all?
3: Yeah, well, the family happened to be, he's our imam, like our priest right. for our downtown mosque. So, mm-hmm. uh, of course, I know him very well, and I know the family very well. So, I was speaking with them this morning, to one yesterday. I mean, they're stunned that this actually is happening, and they're totally, you know, um, in front of my eyes I and mean, in front of the imam's eyes, he, you know, that was attempted murder. The guy was trying to murder them, and that's what he was trying to do. He waited outside. They went inside the store, and he was cursing and swearing at them. And then when he came back, when they came back out, he was still waiting for them. And then they tried to hide in the bushes, and he's still trying to chase them. And luckily, there were other people present there that chased the guy, and he disappeared then. And, you know, it's just sad, totally, totally sad that, that we have come to this in this uh, city of ours.
0: And how, how is the family doing at this point? How, how shaken are they? Uh, are they able to move forward from this?
3: Well, Scott, you've got a family, so imagine if this happened to you. How would you feel, mm-hmm. and how would your spouse feel? This is what mm-hmm. they're, they're going through. They're just totally devastated from this thing. Do you think and, they uh,
0: were – sorry, go ahead, go ahead.
3: Uh, you know, our imam, he's a very strong man and a very uh, positive person. And for him to be shaken, so I could just imagine his wife and daughter, what they're going through. He just told me this morning, they're just totally traumatized. He was especially my daughter, because if it wasn't for my wife pulling her, he would have ran her over. And, uh, you know, just, you know, we all have women folks in our families, right? And and somebody coming out of nowhere and trying to attack them.
0: Do you think this was a targeted attack? I mean, was he looking specifically for them because of uh, being an imam? No, no,
3: nothing to do with them being an imam. It would have been any Muslim person that would have done it because they had hijabs on, and this guy was telling them that this is not a a Muslim country. This is a Christian country and a Jewish country, so get the hell out of here and swearing and cursing at them. And And they were going into the shopper's drug mart. When they came back out, he was still out there waiting for them. So what would you imagine? What would
0: you feel? Um, so he, they were targeted because obviously, uh, he identified them as Muslim, but not necessarily because of who they were or, uh, who their father or husband was. Oh, that's right.
3: That's yeah. absolutely mm-hmm. true. And then this morning, you know, there's another twist to this story, which is, uh, our imam has a social media page on, on Facebook. And then somebody, uh, you know, we, the authorities have the details on somebody sending a message that, Hey, we're watching you. We know where you live. Uh, what well, kind of a,
4: you know,
3: it's just uh, sad. And they send this to the Imam. Um, like, imagine this cl- clergy has to deal with this matter. I mean, God forbid they did whatever to his uh, his daughter and wife. And then all of a sudden, they talk, you know, they're telling him now that they presumably know who he is.
0: Hmm. Uh, and there were people there, witnesses there who did intervene. Is that correct, Javed? Yes, of course they did. Yes. There was a lady who contacted the police, the other one, uh, the
3: other couple, there was another couple who actually, from my understanding, they followed the guy to see where he was, and they, they found the location or his home or whatever, wherever he was stopping, and they, they told the police where, where the person is. And so we yeah, obviously have incredibly decent human beings in the city, too, at the same time.
0: Yeah, thank goodness, and we have to remember that too. Uh, so obviously, a suspect has been arrested. Uh, does that does that make the the family feel relieved at all?
3: Well, yes, it does. But in, in a sense, for this to happen uh, is really, really wrong. Like. Yeah. You know what I'm trying to I, last night I spoke at our mosque and I was telling everybody all the guys that were there because there were probably a couple of hundred people at the prayer last night and I was telling everybody, listen, you guys, when you're outside, when you see anything, just please be observant. And I'm telling everybody to be observant and I'm I'm encouraged I'm asking all my Christian brothers and sisters and my Jewish brothers and Hindus and Sikhs and, and and atheist brothers and sisters that are out there, please pay attention to what's going on out there. You know, be a citizen as, as a citizen should be. If there's something unjust going on anywhere, please stand up. Because that's what we're supposed to do as Canadians, as Hamiltonians. We don't allow this kind of garbage to happen. And if something is happening that you see it yourself, especially, you know, women folks and, and, and... I mean, we can't allow this to happen in, in our city or in our country, most importantly. Like, I've had maybe 40, 45 calls... Since yesterday about this topic, from people in my community that are really scared, guys are asking me should they, send, you know, their wives and kids, can they go out by themselves? You know, like, like we can be looking at and, and having, you know, women being chaperoned. I mean, this sh- cannot happen in our country. This cannot happen in our city. I love Hamilton, and I have to go through this nonsense from some creeps that have, I don't know what kind of motives that they have. A human life is a human life, regardless of who it is. We cannot uh, we cannot attack other people's civil liberties, and that's what these people are doing. And that's what you know they're trying to intimidate people and and coming up with. Uh, I mean, I, I I'm hoping that our leadership in in our city may be. I mean, the mayor was very good this morning. His statement was incredible. I spoke with Sonia Tassi; she was really good, as well as uh, you know Bob Bertina, uh Donna Skelly, Andrea Horvath, All these. I've, I've been, the prime minister, I've been watching his statements and what they've been saying and some of that have contacted me directly. I mean, we need people to stand up. The chief himself has been really good. We need people to stand up and, and pay attention like your show. Scott, you need to get out there and what you do and you need to, you, Bill, everybody needs to get, tell public, hey, if you see something that's wrong, stop it. Get them, stop. I mean, I'm not saying we're all perfect, but there are people that are just, just nuts. So we, as a civil society, need to make sure that those nuts don't do stupid things to other people. I mean, good Samaritan means good Samaritan. I am my brother's keeper, you know. This is important for us to do that as citizens of this country, as citizens of this city. We need to make sure that we cannot have harm like this coming to our city. I've had people, bu- you know, I do business all across the world, and I have people contacting me from, what is going on? You know, this, hit, this is not the, the publicity that I want to have for our city or our country.
0: What's it like in the mosque? What's the mood? What are people talking about? You talked about how you were warning people just to keep an eye out, just to be aware. I mean, that's tragic. You even have to say that. What's it like in the mosque? I'm not worried about the mosque. I'm not I think there's
3: enough fuss there. I ain't worried about the mosque. Maybe he or she will take uh, one or two of us, but he or she's not walking out of the mosque. I'm just concerned about our you know, ordinary folks that are walking down the street when the when the chief was asking me uh about a month back when it happened in London, hey listen, we're gonna have extra security at the mosque and I told the chief, I said, It's not extra security at the mosque that's important. It's important to have extra security out on the road when your officers are driving around, just you know, in case they see somebody, just pay attention because... Because we were concerned about this, and this actually happened. And look where it's happening. It's happening in Meadowlands. And and I'm in in a suburbia, Hamilton. And you don't expect, you know, you kind of quote unquote assume that, you know, these things could happen in some other part of the city. And imagine it happening there. So we have, you know, Islamophobia is real. And and God willing, you know, there's a summit that's coming up, and and, uh, hopefully. From what I'm understanding from the prime minister and the premier and, and uh, everybody else, that they'll, uh, hopefully they'll take some of the recommendations and, uh, and implement it. You know, we worked very hard in this country when it came to um, anti-Semitism. We made sure that, that people punished for it who did something, who did not. I think it's time that we do the same with, this, uh, with Islamophobia, because it is real. And it is happening. And it needs to be
0: stopped. So you believe that tougher uh, tougher measures are needed for these types of crimes?
3: Yes, I think tougher measures measures need to be there. But as well as education, I'm really hoping that you know over the last thirty years that I've been in the leadership role at Damascus, I have worked very hard with with all of our with uh, a lot of clergy in the city and also with a lot of. Uh, you know, leaders and politicians, and I'm hoping that they come forward and they come out and they tell their, uh, you know, hopefully this Sunday the sermon will be that, hey, listen, uh, you know, uh, attack against one is attack against all, that, you know, that people tell each other that you cannot allow this to happen, because it's really affecting us, it's really affecting our city or our country, we cannot have this kind of, I mean, Canada is a, is a, is a country where my father chose to come here, and he brought us here, and that the reason behind that was because he thought this was the best country in the world. And I truly, truly believe that it's the best country in the world. We cannot have some, you know, little things like this. Or they're not little things, but things like this that can mm-hmm. really affect the, uh, you know, this is not what we're looking for. We don't need publicity like that. We need good publicity, you know. Like what Vladi did last night, that's what we need to talk about Canada. But what he did yesterday, not about this topic.
0: Uh, many were hoping, and we saw during this global pandemic, people come together, people help each other, people be more empathetic towards each other. Uh, but do you think, as we come out of the pandemic, that's changing, or is it naive to think that that's happening?
3: Well, no, it is changing because last week our imam had a, all of our imams had a session with uh, with clergy from various different churches. And they were all at our mosque, and, and they were going through their you know uh, their usual stuff, and it was quite good that there were so much clergy that was there and uh I, I generally believe you know being living in Hamilton my whole life, I' generally believe that people are not what you're seeing, but there's an odd person, there are people out there. But the only way you can stop them is by standing up to them and say, you cannot do that. If you hear somebody saying the, the N-word or somebody saying something about an Aboriginal person or, or a Muslim person or a Jewish person, if you're standing in that group and you're there, you've got to say, stop. This cannot happen. You cannot say that. You need to, you know, as a parent, as an, an adult, uh, as a human being, every life is important. We cannot allow these kind of things to happen. And the only way we can stop this is by standing up to it and saying, stop. There's no jokes about this matter because this this is not a joke. This is real.
0: Javed Mirza, with us, president of the Muslim Association of Hamilton. Hamilton police investigating a anti-Muslim hate crime in Ancaster at the Meadowlands. A suspect is in custody. Javed, thanks so much for the time and insight. Please give our best to the family. Thank you. Take care, Scott. Bye. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on nine hundred CHML.
3: It's a little bit of a dangerous trend here where people are in in a data free, evidence free zone as far as a mix and match. There is limited data on mix and match. It will be a chaotic situation in countries if citizens start, you know, deciding when and who uh, they should be taking a second or a third or a fourth dose.
0: World Health Organization, uh, a couple of days ago, top scientists there uh, talking about mixing and matching. To sort of add clarity to all of this and a bit of an update where we are, let's bring in Dr. Ahmad Khalid, health policy expert. He is with us now. Ahmad, thanks for the time as always. Hope you're doing well. Same to you, Scott. Thanks for having me. All right. Your thoughts on uh, clearing up uh, where we are with the World Health Organization uh, Organization and moving on with this?
2: Well, just to be clear, I think it was an individual scientist who made those claims at WHO. And I can assure mm-hmm. you that if that person, that scientist, she was probably under a very uh, enormous amount of pressure after making that statement to clarify, which she has done. And and the clarity here is that the scientist was talking specifically about individuals across the world who are deciding to get a, a third and a fourth shot, Scott, which is quite dangerous. So what mm-hmm. we are seeing is that there are parts in the world where people have decided on their own, A, to mix vaccines without their public health authorities recommendation, and two, to feel like they need to get as many shots as possible because they think that by mixing different vaccines and getting a third and fourth booster shot, if you want to call them, they'll have increased immunity. Now, that is quite dangerous because we don't have data on that. We don't have clear evidence on that. However, here in Canada, what's important for the public to know is that our recommendations was based on NACI. And Nasa reviewed evidence uh, that was very crystal clear that it is safe to mix a first, a first and second dose of the vaccine, the mRNA vaccine or AstraZeneca and others. And so that doesn't change anything for us. However, the damage has already been done. I'll be very quite honest with you. I think it's, it's sent a, a repercussions across the world where people who are already hesitant about getting a second dose of a different vaccine now are leaning more towards no and we're already hearing reports within our own country that that is exactly what's been happening
0: uh and i'm sure many watched the news last night and 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 saw a clinic i believe it was in brampton and lots of people eagerly waiting to get their their shot and then the announcement was made that it was not pfizer it was moderna and we just saw dozens walk away which I, i just couldn't believe how do you address that
2: well, the way I address it is that I'll tell the public that right now the, 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 the cases of hospitalization due to COVID-19 are people who are unvaccinated. Uh, and so that's a cre- clear crystal message to anybody out there who's debating whether they should get the vaccine, period, or not. People who are getting sick with COVID-19 and ending up in the hospital right now, based on the evidence, are mostly unvaccinated individuals. And so, you know, the evidence has not changed on the, uh, the safety of mixing a Pfizer and Moderna or Moderna and Pfizer. Uh, the, the evidence is clear that it is safe and you can continue to do so. The comments made by WHO were specific to individuals who were getting a third and fourth booster shot and were not following the recommendations of their own country's public health agency. I mean, I tell you, I, I'm going to keep it very honest here. That scientist is, is in really hot waters. Uh, mm. I can assure you of that. I don't know that firsthand, but i from somebody who's worked in that organization very closely. That statement, it's, it's, it's quite crazy, Scott, that one statement made by one yeah. scientist at a leading organization that we do trust can have such an effect across the world.
0: So, and we've seen this obviously a And I mean, you know, nobody's perfect. Everybody makes mistakes. Mm. This is new. You know, we're treading new water here. I mean, even though we're a year and a half into this, what can we learn from this moving forward? Whether it's AstraZeneca, whether it's Nasi, whether it's uh, whether it's the World Health Organization, how how will we how will we correct this moving forward? Do you think? This is a great question, Scott, and something that we're continuously thinking about and reflecting on.
2: And the honest truth to you is that what we need to do is that really be consistent with our messaging. I think we're seeing that people are you know, uh, basically asking all health organizations to work closely with the WHO and with their own entities and to have a streamlined message. So when statements like this made yesterday come out, countries are ready to address them. Uh, that they're not surprised by making them. I mean, a lot of today's narrative has been defending Canada's decisions on nasty and convincing the public yet again that the evidence is clear. That shouldn't be the case. Our efforts should be really focused on getting people vaccinated, on getting people to get appointments they need, into raising the awareness as much as possible, not defending something that Nazi and others have already defended repeatedly before. So the big message here, the big lesson, is that you know, we need to be on the alert and really streamline and make sure that we, we know what's coming our way in terms of messaging from central agencies like the World Health Organization
0: um you were talking about uh boosters and and, mm-hmm. and third and fourth doses and people i guess bulking up thinking this is going to help them and, and obviously we have to follow uh the information that we do have your comments on what israel is doing because i understand they are uh experimenting with that third do- with that third shot whether it's a booster or what have you i mean you use
2: the correct word there they're experimenting uh and so uh, they, you know they're just giving a trial of what this would look like. The U.S. has also put on, Pfizer has put on an FDA sort of approval process for the booster shot. So countries around the world are exploring it. We know of countries, for example, United Arab Emirates and other countries in the Gulf region that have have very high rates of vaccination, like Bahrain and the United Arab Emirates are one of the top countries in the world that has vaccinated the most of their citizens. But they didn't use Pfizer and Moderna, Scott. They used something called Sinopharm, which is a different vaccine. And they realized actually that that vaccine, that specific vaccine, was not as effective as they hoped for. And so now they are actually uh, implementing a booster Pfizer shot. So that's very different scenario. For us in Canada, as of now, we are not engaging in a discussion around booster shots because we don't see the need for it. It's clear that our vaccines are still working against the variants and that we're reducing our case numbers across the country and our risk of people ending up in the ICU is exceptionally low at this point. So I think it's a wait and tell time to see if, if a new variant presents itself where we might need to look at a booster shot. But as of now, there is no indication that Canada is strongly looking or exploring a experimental booster shot trial.
0: Uh, we've talked about this before, Ahmad, uh, and whether we will need, and I guess only time will tell, as you mentioned, where, we, where and when we will need uh, a booster shot. If so, um, are we just to assume that after one year we will, or uh, could this be that, hey, once you've, you've got your double dose, you're good?
2: We're still looking at the trials. Of this. I mean, I tell you that Pfizer and Moderna are actually examining this as we speak. They're trying to see how long is this vaccine effective for? Nobody has the answer for that simply because those are new vaccines. And so we, they haven't been around long enough for us to know what the effect, how long their effects will last for. And more importantly, Scott, the variants are presenting themselves differently. So it's really a weight game. And, and I know it's frustrating to hear that, but, we, you know, it's a new virus. It's a new vaccine. It's a new world we live in. And by that, I mean, we just have to wait and tell and see, you know, and we also more importantly, we need the entire world to get vaccinated, right? The sooner we get everybody vaccinated, the less likely we're going to have this uh, very crazy variance that might present the challenges to countries like ours.
0: Ahmad, do you see a big debate coming on whether we should go for the third shot as opposed to trying to get the rest of the world finished?
2: Yes, I think that for Canada specific, we're going to be more looking at the booster shot conversation, rather than the rest of the world. We tend to function in silos. This is not specific to Canada. It's specific to the entire world. We tend to think of our own country first before we think of others. And so I think Canada is probably going to be looking more closely in the booster, which is, to be quite frank for me, with you, from a global health perspective, is ill-advised. I think we need to vaccinate the entire world before we start looking at a booster shot
0: uh september is coming back to school starting with colleges and and universities we are seeing some saying no vaccine no campus seneca college sorry yeah seneca Mm -hmm. college uh mentioned this yesterday there's other uh universities colleges that are that are obviously trying to process all of this what are your thoughts do we do we make this mandatory for campus life does it depend on whether you're in a hot spot or not
2: It's a conversation that I think all universities are are struggling with because you can't necessarily mandate it. You can't mandate people to get them. However, what universities are saying, including Seneca, is, it's a choice. They're trying to to be very careful with their wording, And they're saying, you know, you can stay online, but if you choose to come to our campuses, we want proof of vaccination. And so what I think is going to happen, and this is a speculation, is that universities will be very hard for them to mandate it uh for for people to show proof of vaccination however they will need to provide an alternative solution so just like how we're doing with our courses now we're offering a blended learning model where we can offer students the opportunity to, to to you know get educated from home or they can come into campuses i feel like the same will be applied to employees and people who have to to report to work
0: your thoughts on back to school for the elementary students obviously the high school students will be vaccinated but those 12 under can't be yet uh what do you see happening in the fall
2: well we need more more strategies i mean we've been alerting the government to this for a long time we need better ventilation we need you know there's big conversations around uh the children when they have to eat during their break time how much social distancing is happening there I mean, there's still a lot of work to be done in schools to ensure the safety of our kids when they go back to school settings. And, and the plea has been for the government to put forward the strategies. They're working hard at it, but more needs to be done to ensure the safety of the kids come fall time.
0: Uh, your thoughts on where we are, and I know you got to run soon. Your thoughts on where we are now, Doctor? Uh, obviously, uh, we're hearing in Hamilton tomorrow, First Ontario Centre, walking right up, get your shot. I mean, this has been going on in places like Toronto and such. Uh, your thoughts of where we find ourselves now?
2: Well, I think we're doing very well. However, I will caution that we're coming to a time now where vaccine has been at its height in Canada. We need to be looking closely at the subset of population who are not getting vaccinated. And we need to think carefully about how do we target them? How do we make sure that we get to them the, the adequate and evidence-based messaging around the safety of the vaccine? And is there a way for us that to work with community leaders? to help to mobilize them so they can help us get at those targeted individuals so that we have a higher vaccination rate that we're hoping for.
0: We've certainly seen uh, some families, uh, friends being divided. Be, you know, People talk about passports and government regulations. Well, this is happening within households, within uh, places of business. People are, you know, are asking, are you vaccinated? And, and having a reaction to that one way or the other. How do you suggest we have that conversation with people?
2: It's a very sensitive one. I mean, it's almost like when we ask people if they voted and who they voted for. Yeah. Like, it's, you know, it's one of those conversations that we do it. We all know that it's probably not the best question to ask because it infringes on in people's personal freedoms. However, I do also understand the other perspective of that. If you're inviting somebody, my advice is the following. If you're inviting somebody to your household, to your own sort of personal space, uh, I personally think you have the right to ask. Uh, whether they've been vaccinated, that's something you're comfortable with. Uh, now, keep in mind that you're not forced to have people in your personal space, right? That, that's a choice you've made. So I think it's a sensitive conversation and it's going to be person dependent.
0: Dr. Ahmad Khalid has been with us, health policy expert, uh, giving us an update on everything COVID-19. Doctor, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. Thank you, Scott. Thanks for having me. Here's today's daily commentary. I want to read you an email I received yesterday. My two daughters are both in the Catholic school system. My youngest just finished grade four and my oldest just finished grade 10. They both love their schools, teachers and their friends. They came to me a couple of weeks ago and said they wanted to do something more than just wear an orange shirt to show solidarity with the indigenous people of Canada. They told me that they no longer wanted to support a Catholic institution and wanted to show solidarity and their outrage at the residential schools and the church's refusal to own their wrongdoing by leaving the Catholic education system. I have removed my kids and enrolled them in the public school board. I will no longer support the Catholic educational system. Obviously, I'm very proud of my daughters, and it shows that there is more that we can do than just wear an orange shirt. We need to start taking action by showing those institutions that sponsored these atrocities that it is not okay and we are no longer going to be complicit. That's The Next Generation. I'm Scott Thompson. Let's talk some politics, including uh, the Green Party, which is uh, just seems to be coming apart at the seams here and uh, have made a move to block funding for the leader Anime Paul's riding campaign, which kind of seems like shooting yourself in the foot. Let's bring in Tim Powers, chairman, Summa Strategies and managing director of Abacus Data and is with us now. Tim, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well.
1: And well, of course, when you play my entry song, you know it's part of my big contract with you. We gotta have the Great Big C. So
0: well done, Scott. You've got a music writer. I love that. (laughs) That and the red M and M's—they're on their way.
1: (laughs) No, well, no, the chocolate make my tummy go off. Kind of like the Green Party, you know. They're all having big gastrointestinal issues at the moment for the whole nation to see. Aren't we blessed?
0: And just on the eve of uh, of an election, it would seem, uh, what is happening here? Because uh, Annamie Paul was sold as a star candidate here that was going to take this party to the next level. What went wrong?
1: Well, I, I don't pretend, and I don't know if you'd find many in the country who are Green Party whisperers, but let me try and diagnose a little bit from afar And having had some colleagues who spent some time working in the Green Party over a decade ago. Well, I... Look, uh, clearly uh, there's a disconnect, <laughs> to state the obvious, between the leader and the governing body of the party. Is the governing body of the party, are they still fighting the last leadership convention? Uh, do they not? Uh, they clearly don't want uh, Ms. Paul. Um, and the thing I'd add here, Scott, that's important, maybe that helped drive the rest of the discussion is, the NDP, the conservatives, the liberals, even the bloc, all have structures, right? They have approaches. They have caucus discipline. The one thing that the National Green Party has developed is none of that. Hmm. Uh, they don't have the same sort of you know, obvious uh, stated ties that bind and, and culture that binds. The Green Party nationally, and this is not to insult them, but our collection of advocates and activists who behave more like advocates and activists without the discipline of a party structure, and you're seeing it at its most pronounced worst right now uh, in this discussion around Ms. Paul and whether she's getting fired or not fired.
0: And that seemed to work during the uh, infancy stages of this party and the first uh, years of its operation. But at that time, none of the other political parties really had a green vision whatsoever. Now every major political party has some sort of of, of green policy. Is this party still relevant considering all those things you just said? Because the one thing they're really good at, everybody else kind of covering.
1: Yeah, I mean, everybody has now a position on carbon pricing, right? Even the Conservatives uh, uh, put one on the table uh, a, a few months ago. Um, but in Europe, you know, in Europe, for example, in Prince Edward Island, where they're the opposition, in New Brunswick, in British Columbia, where they've had political influence, they were a partner in the original first work in government, they were able to expand their base of influence beyond environmental policy. I don't think the National Party has yet demonstrated an ability to do that. Uh, Elizabeth May was able to get a tremendous amount of attention because she was a well-known, well-regarded figure across the land before she became leader. So it became a party of personality. And I I, I don't believe there's been a ton of change in in that. So uh, Ms. Paul, uh, a a different uh, leader, one that was heralded, by the way, for Brightly so, being so capable and able. She's got an impressive CV. She's the first uh, woman of colour to lead a major Canadian party. And some of the ways she stood up to the Green Party, you can admire all of that, but maybe the Green Party doesn't want that. Uh, they want a reversion to old. But to, to your point a moment ago, um, taking down this leader makes them look, it, 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 look petty. Uh, it's led to charges of racism charges that in this day and age uh, will drive voters scurrying for the hills as they should.
0: Uh, As you mentioned, it's a party more of activism than it is of politicians. How come in like even at the provincial level, it seems a bit more civil than it does at the federal level, which is supposed to be, uh, you know, the mothership of all of this. Uh, How come there's politicians or that structure, as you put it, in some of these parties? But in the federal party, it just seems to be extreme activism.
1: I guess because they've never chosen to evolve the structure. I knew friends who wanted to work with the Green Party because they saw the potential there a decade ago, but they were not able to achieve progress then. I don't know if much progress has been achieved in the interim because the Green Party was comfortable to being about personalities nationally. But again, I'll use the PEI example. I know it a little bit better. In the last provincial election campaign in PEI, they talked about housing accessibility, they talked Mm -hmm. about poverty, they talked about jobs and employment, and they presented themselves as a reasonable alternative to the traditional parties Um, that helped them get opposition status. They did a lot of the same in New Brunswick where they got three seats, I believe, and again going to BC, Andrew Weaver, the then Green uh, leader in BC, he's no longer in that role, Work with John Horgan on economic issues. They had some key climate pieces of legislation that um andrew weaver wanted but they focused on the broad nature of of governing i mean this whole dust up too and the green party doesn't make a lot of sense scott because it started around the middle east well no political party is going to have a sensible discussion around middle east politics so why would you even as in canada anyway why would you as the green party even get into all of that i mean it just it's, it's baffling
0: uh the green party can't be happy about how they're being perceived right now do they have any do they realize they're shooting themselves in the foot here major
1: sometimes around activism it's about purity and maybe they believe they're dealing with the purity of the in- the party cuz it's not really an institution that they they see i i i i mean they're a joke right right now to a large degree mm. here we are Weeks away from a potential election call, rumors in this neck of the woods, which I'm sure you've heard suggest mid-August, maybe, you know, sometime after August 14th, 15th, onwards. That's not very long. Uh, Ms. Paul has a vote coming her way next Tuesday. You know, if you're a Canadian without political affiliation, and you're looking to make a choice, and you're hearing all of these stories about the Green Party, how could you give them serious consideration it's like you're making you you're, you're going to make a restaurant reservation for dinner now that we soon can go back into restaurants well would you go to a restaurant where you don't know if they're going to keep the cook and you don't know what's on <laughs> the menu
0: uh i shouldn't laugh but it is almost uh comical uh because the credibility is eroding away faster uh than anyone uh, can imagine um uh, in regard to her funding and and blocking her funding uh you're what you're theoretically doing is is, is blocking her chances you're of you're yeah, you're blo- yeah exactly if, if you're blocking her chances of success money.
1: yeah sorry i didn't mean to cut you off no so that's leader. okay so
0: but how does that happen how, how is this happening where the leader is 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 not really the leader
1: it's a very good question. I never heard it happen to, to Elizabeth May. Again, what kind of structure do they have created? Were there previous accountability issues maybe that uh, led to this, not with Miss Paul, but, but with others? And again, I, I, when I saw her respond to this initial set of things, I, she, she's a compelling performer. Yeah. Um. Maybe she's too mainstream for them. I don't know. Sometimes activists prefer a purity of resistance. And that was Elizabeth May's great uh, great strength, right? She could be the voice of conscience who was never asked to deliver on on anything, and maybe that's what the Greens want to be. And they maybe they fear um, it's Paul taking them too far to the center. I I, I don't know. It's it's just shrouded. That in almost such...
0: that almost sounds to him like they want to be more of an activist organization than a credible yeah. political party.
1: Well, have they demonstrated anything but, Scott? I mean, for yeah. example, if you were going to be a, a serious political party. One of the things you would look at is a winning electoral strategy. What does that mean in Canada? Well, it means you should try and get the minimum number of seats in the House of Commons that constitutes you being uh, a recognized party. What does that mean? That means more money, uh, more resources to research, more money to build. So it used to be 12 seats. It may be a little higher. Why, why do the Greens? Well, we're on 338 candidates. They were serious about winning. Why wouldn't they take a bit of a block Quebec approach, run specific, you know, run some candidates in PEI where they have base, run some more in B.C., run some in New Brunswick, run some in Ontario where Mike Schreier is, Um, instead of trying to run 338 and just get attention from all of that. They have not demonstrated in any shape or form that they want to be a main political federal party, I would put to you.
0: Uh, you mentioned Elizabeth May. Uh, did this sort of um, did this sort of action happen during her reign? And how much control does she still have over this party?
1: Well, there was always chaos, but uh, she seemed to manage it in because she was she was the the the, the matriarch of, of the organization. You'll remember there was some controversy. When uh, remember the hockey player George Larock, the great enforcer, he was the deputy leader, and there were, I can't remember what went off the rails then, but something went off the rails then, and there've been uh, it, it just um, you know it, there were either minor skirmishes, bits of controversy. Uh, Elizabeth's big focus seemed to be always getting in the, the debate and using that as a, yeah. uh, a launching pad to be uh, to remind people of who the conscience was in in, in Canada. Uh, but real achievements, I mean, in fairness, I guess they had three Well, they have three now still because they had a defection from the NDP. But, you know, maybe she was making some headway, four seats. But, my God, at that pace of growth, Scott, you and I will be 1,708 <laughs> by the time they get to 12.
0: Uh, so will we see uh, Annamie Paul take the Green Party into the next election, or will something wacky happen between now and then? i, I, I
1: <laughs> I don't know. I mean, yeah. Elizabeth May may end up by de facto. It's a bit, a bit like uh, you and I, of course, were kids in, in Nappy's time when the, the liberals tried to take uh, Turner out, if you recall, in the, what was it, the 88 election, they were going to try and run somebody else in there. Uh, maybe the Greens can take Anna May Paul out and uh And uh, and and um, and Elizabeth May comes back. I I, I do not have a clue because it's just so hard to tell what this is really all about.
0: So who benefits from the Green Party's woes? Does anybody I mean there's only a couple of seats there, but uh, certainly the messaging is strong. Who benefits?
1: Uh, I think it's spread around a little bit. I mean, they they take some votes sometimes from the conserv some conservative's depending where they are, because there are some, you know, some of their policy, uh, at least provincially, is, it tends to be a little bit more uh, fiscally responsible on, on other issues. Uh, the Liberals might benefit as well, too. Um, the NDP might get some progressives who are green, who can't stomach Justin Trudeau, and like the way Mr. Singh is performing. So, uh, yeah, I mean, they're not a me. There are some seats, they're very specific seats, where Miss May's seat, um... You know, she bleeds, uh, bleeds conservative votes to her side. She beat Gary Lund, the former conservative minister, years ago and has, has held on there. So does it have an impact on her or is, is she Teflon as she's demonstrated before when she's gotten in the House?
0: uh obviously lots of chatter about a fall election especially with the vaccination rates being uh what they are uh we've certainly seen polling that shows the liberals uh are, are certainly strong and have continued to to uh be so through this pandemic uh is this election a slam dunk is this a slam dunk for the liberal uh, liberals tim
3: yeah,
1: right now it would look like that um but i mean you know sorry to have to say it elections do matter but the, the the lead into this one has been so different right and it because it's still so focused on covid um, and vaccinations and everything you just talked about. And Canadians, we're seeing it in our abacus data. Uh, David Coletto, our, our chief pollster, said this uh, yesterday. He's never seen the country in a more upbeat mood. Well, if uh, since he's done polling, if you're a prime minister, you want to go to the polls when people are happy, because God help you when they're cranky, you're likely to focus on that. So if they can keep People happy and the openings continue and life stays gets better and they can take credit it's hard to see how they don't win the election if that buoyancy stays and they call it quickly as I said to you a few moments ago Scott the 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 suggestion is sometime after Mary Simon gets sworn in officially as governor general uh, sometime after the August long weekend uh, that the, the The Prime Minister is going to go to the polls. I mean, they may go in Nova Scotia this week, and there may be some sinking around that, which means Nova Scotia would have its election by August 17th if they went this week. So Trudeau may wait a day or two before he calls it. But the date that keeps coming back is the potential election date is September 20th. That was originally intended to be the day Parliament returned. So for that to happen, the election has to be called in the first three weeks of August.
0: Uh, is there a window here, or is there a fear of a window closing as more and more get vaccinated? Do we just keep this euphoric feeling forever, or does reality kick in? Because I still sense there's some angry people out there.
1: Yeah, oh, there for certainly are, but I think you know we're just we've all so been affected by COVID that yeah. it's, it's something that wouldn't provide you joy before it does. Yeah, of course the window starts to close. So what happens in? when school what happens by the beginning of October? And I think that's the the Trudeau calculation. We're probably okay To do things and evolve as uh, summer and people still stay outside. And as you know, you can pretty much stay outside in Canada, at least till the end of September. But kids go back to school on time. There's a normalcy that sits in there. Does it get a bit rocky in October when it gets colder and people go back in? Numbers go up, as Dr. Moore, the Ontario uh, chief medical officer, said yesterday. Does that throw people off? So that's why, again, I think Barring a major outbreak of of the Delta virus or another variant of concern in the next four weeks, I think we're headed to the polls.
0: Uh, You talked about the governor general and such. Some chatter about uh, uh, her French speaking ability. Thoughts on that?
1: Give me a break, will you? Look, um, you never doesn't matter. Irrelevant? It matters to some people, to be fair. But Julie Payette spoke French. That went really friggin' well, didn't it? Um, you know, I look if you're going, if you're going to choose uh, a well-respected indigenous leader as Mary Simon is, um, who said she will try and learn French, knowing she's already bilingual and that she speaks enough to talk and English. Mm-hmm. Now, come on, like you, you, you're never going to get the perfect, perfect candidate uh it's hard to be very and full disclosure not to sound like one of these ottawa blowhards i know mary simon a little bit she's not my best buddy we did do some work together but i think she's a you know she's a fantastic choice and uh, i think if you're going to start to pick at her because she doesn't know french yet even though she says she's going to do it well you're never going to be happy anyway
0: uh what is the biggest challenge for the ndp and the conservatives as we move into the fall not to get
1: steamrolled by Trudeau, um, to try and, and and conjure up some errors uh, from Justin Trudeau, uh, he had them as we know in 2019. I mean, gra- my goodness, Andrew Shear saved myself from saying a bad word there, Scott and Will having to push the delete bleep button of the Don Cherry <laughs> special. But uh, Andrew Shear, who I don't think has this, uh, uh, didn't have great political skills, almost uh, took Trudeau down to minority. Um, so mistakes can happen. I think Mr. Singh. Wants to find a way to channel the positive frame that Canadians have of him at the moment, and Mister O'Toole, I mean, I suppose, is looking at the fact that the expectations are so low for him at the moment that if he has a good campaign um, and maybe is a little bit less angry, as Andrew Coyne suggested in his column today, that uh, th- th- that surprises can happen. Um, as you say, there are people out there who are not entirely happy. There are people who are looking to the future and worried about where we're going economically, who don't think that Bobby McFerrin is the greatest political philosopher to follow. Don't worry, be happy, which seems to be the Prime Minister's guiding political orthodoxy at the moment.
0: Tim Powers with us, Chairman of Summa Strategies and Managing Director of Abacus Data, talking about all things politics, including the Green Party. Uh, Tim, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well.
1: Take care, my friend. Bye. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast
0: on 900 CHML.
1: An online poll of 2,000 Ontario residents for the Ontario Real Estate Association shows 45% of potential buyers, 18 to 29, have considered moving out of the province in search of more affordable housing. Tim Hudak, the CEO of Aurea, said governments have to act now.
0: This is a five alarm bell. Uh, We should be very concerned, particularly uh, those uh, decision makers in provincial governments and municipal that uh, a lot of the young talent in Ontario, those that are millennials, uh, Generation Z, uh, are saying, you know what, I-, I played by the rules. I did everything uh, I was told to do. I worked hard. I got my degree. I got a decent job. But I-, I can't afford a home to save my life.
1: Among Ontarians under the age of 45,
0: 46% of non-homeowners, 34% of homeowners have thought about relocating. Tad Michaels, 900 CHML News. To talk more about all of this and uh, this crisis that uh, some are saying is a legacy of the pandemic is Murtaza Hayter, professor with the Ted Rogers School of Management, Ryerson University, and with us now. Murtaza, thank you for the time. I hope you're well.
4: I am. Thank you for having me.
0: How has the pandemic changed this discussion?
4: I think what the pandemic has done mostly is changed the valuation of space. Um, it has made homes more than what they were uh, before the pandemic. Now your home is your home office. It's the daycare if you have younger children. It is also the school for your kids if they are being homeschooled. Um, it's the last step in the last m- uh, mile of the retail supply chain. So people have been looking for more space. They have been craving for more space. they need working from home. And that has increased the valuation of homes and space. And that's why you could see that prices have increased uh, steadily or rapidly in the past 15 months.
0: Murtaza, do you see this trend continuing? Will this con- is this the new normal or will things slowly get back to what the old normal was?
4: So it is quite uh, unlikely that the gains in housing prices will be reversed. So, in terms of permanency, the prices where they have increased by say 20 to 30 percent or more in the past 12 to 15 months, those levels will not um, de- decline in in any meaningful way. So that's the permanency if you're looking for it. But the rate of growth um, is is certainly not going to continue. It's it's un, um, um, it's unlikely, quite unlikely, that housing prices will continue to appreciate. At a rate of uh, say twenty plus percent year over year, Um, a more reasonable assumption would be that once things return to normal, the rate of appreciation would be around between five to ten percent. But to expect the housing prices to increase by twenty five to thirty percent every year, and that's not going to happen because the earnings or incomes uh, seldom rise in 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 step with with such humongous increases in housing prices.
0: Martaza, for years we've talked about uh, suburban sprawl, we've got to stop this, we've got to stack people up, we've got to uh, more urbanization, this sort of thing. Uh, What about the demand for housing versus the demand for higher density? Is this changing the way we have viewed uh, housing as as far as, you know, being in in perhaps a 30-story condo with, uh, you know, 600 or 800 square feet uh, as opposed to something on the ground with a backyard?
4: I think the pandemic definitely has changed that uh, conversation. The pejorative way in which planning authorities or planners have looked at the suburbs and thought of them as nothing but sprawl. Well, suburbs have come to the rescue of economy and workers uh, because they were the places where most workers actually were able to do their work without feeling the squeeze or or being tightly packed into a condominium or an apartment of 700 square feet with another partner or children also. So so that change uh, and uh, preference for uh, more space um, and preference for open space is going to be long lasting. And I remember in the past, I saw studies saying that we are overhoused and people have spare rooms, and, and that's the problem. And now, no no one is actually ask, calling about or, or publishing papers on or reports on or being overhoused or spare bedrooms. Every square inch of the house was used during the pandemic because it doubled that. Double, tripled as school or as office, um, or working from home office. So, um, what has changed now and will remain as such is a greater appreciation for space, and therefore the the valuation of homes in suburbs, um, in uh, external suburbs, or, or suburbs that are more remote or exurbs, and even rural areas. Uh, would see uh, um, and uh, would continue to see an increase in their appreciation because the demand for open space and larger space is not going to go away. It's going to stay. So that that fundamental shift in people's preferences has taken place. Also because many companies, um, many firms, large, especially white-collar knowledge economy workers, firms who employ knowledge economy economy workers are telling them that they have the liberty or freedom to work from whatever location they prefer as long as they are. Uh, they continue to be productive. So fundamental shifts have taken place. I think the spatial equilibrium that was pre-pandemic uh, is no longer existing, not to the same extent to what we saw in May and June, but working from home and teleworking would continue to be much higher than it was in the pre-pandemic world, and that would shift our preferences, and therefore the prices, housing prices will also shift as a result.
0: How is this going to change and how can it not change uh, planning, whether you're planning an urban uh, situation or a suburban situation? Is this not going to drastically change how we build these neighborhoods now?
4: Absolutely. I think one thing that is increasingly becoming popular, and you could see even CMHC is recognizing openly that we have not built enough housing. I think this realization was being debated in, in Canada for the last, so many years, people were still convinced that, no, we have built enough homes, and this is not a question of supply, it's a question of demand, and and even now, people believe that there's money laundering going on, or or there are foreign buyers taking up all Canadian properties. But the reality is that the demand has not increased as much as the lack of supply. The supply, we have not built homes. And the funny thing is that if you look at the 1970s and compare that to the last 20 years, you realize that on a per capita basis, we were building more homes in the 70s, than we have been building in 1990s and later. So, how is it possible that our demographic footprint from 22 million people, let's say in the 70s, increasing to 39 million people today, and we still want to build less housing, lesser fewer homes, new homes now than we were building in the 70s? So, that disconnect has to be addressed, and the planning profession, both at the municipal and the provincial level, have to realize that we have a serious undersupply problem. And we have to fix it. If we don't fix it, then there will continue to be a gap between supply and demand. And the most obvious proof of it is the this humongous increase in housing prices over the past 20 months. And that's not, I mean, pandemic is there. Yes, it has changed a bit. It has accelerated the pace or rate of growth, but it has not created a new problem for us. The problem has always been there, that our population has been increasing, and we have not built sufficient housing in the past 20, 30, maybe 50 years, in the past 50 years, due to uh, to accommodate the increase in, in demographics uh, all across Canada.
0: It seems that, you know, when any anybody's ever talked about building, it immediately becomes a bad word and is, uh, is equal to sprawl or urban sprawl. Why are we scared of building, considering canada is growing uh we've seen due to the lack of immigration during the pandemic there's shortages of labor so we're looking for immigration we're looking to grow we're looking to expand but yet we have governments that don't want to build infrastructure or let alone housing why are we scared of building i think
4: you know as a former professor of urban planning at mcgill university i think some of it is hard-coded in the in the in the curriculum when we train planners we sort of um, portray builders and developers in a negative light, and that has to change. I mean, everyone, most of Cana- most Canadians live in a house that was built by a builder, right? But if you look at the the coverage in the newspapers, if you look at the academic literature, m- overwhelming, uh, dominant literature is not does not see development in positive light. It, it sees it as um, as is negative sort of. Looking at builders as purveyors of urban sprawl and not providers of shelter and that that has to change because the more we continue to paint a, a discipline um, or an industry in negative light, the more we will bear the consequences of uh, um, of an inadequate supply because what happens is that when the planning um, profession either because of lack of resources, because also in growing cities we have another problem. It's not just that the planners are adverse to or averse to planning. Some, Actually, I would say most planning departments are very progressive, but they do not have the capacity uh, to deal with the influx of uh, development approval, uh, approval. So what we really need to do is greater coordination between municipal governments and provincial governments so that they, the authorities that have the mandate to manage land use should have the capacity to 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 deliver on their mandate, so that there are guaranteed uh, decision times, so that it doesn't, um, it, it's not the case where an approval application or development application comes in for a new subdivision, and it takes three to five years to get that application through the process. That is unacceptable, and people would pay the price for it because it would increase the cost of new construction and also increase the cost of existing homes or the price of existing homes. So to fix this, one thing that could be done readily is to increase the capacity of those who are responsible for the mandate of land use regulation, approval processes, uh, reviewing development proposals, so that these, these timings that we have um, are reduced. And there's tremendous amount of academic research available, almost unanimous research that shows that areas with restrictive land use uh, policies or where land use approvals take longer time are also the areas where prices continue to rise rapidly. There are no, uh, there's no other evidence that I have seen that says that this is not to be the case. So when we have an abundance of evidence in front of us, we should then help strengthen the departments or or, uh, institutions responsible for land use approvals so that they have the capacity to deliver on their mandates in a reasonable amount of time.
0: How do you find the balance here? Because the opposite side will say, Bortaza, that, you know, uh, the current government's carving up the green space uh, and, and there's all this expansion and da-da-da-da-da. So it, it seems like we, we live in a life of extremes. Uh, you're either way over here or you're way over there. I mean, there was news earlier this week about a high-speed line between Southern Ontario and Quebec. I'm old enough to remember when they were talking about that in the 1970s. Oh, so yeah. how how do you find the balance?
4: I think the balance is that expediting approval processes does not mean that we compromise on our commitment to preserving the environment and ensuring that we do not do harm um, to the to the to the environment and we make sure that the, the sensitive environmentally sensitive areas especially around the GTA the green belt is protected I mean there's no too, there's no it's not a matter of dispute that someone comes up and say in order to uh, um, moderate housing prices, if someone argues that this requires building on green belts I would never support it because there's no. Um, this is not the case. The point is that we have enough mm-hmm. land which is in a developable land that is already either pre-zoned for development or is available to be zoned for development. And we just need to expedite the processes and mechanisms through which um, and the development approval application goes through it. It is not to suggest that we lack or relax our standards. We should never do this. Any development at the at the cost of uh, compromising on environmental uh, preferences or environmental uh, commitments that would be the wrong way to go. All I'm advocating for is efficiency in the processes, and greater coordination between municipal and provincial governments, so that if a if a land use re- rezoning application comes in, don't take five years to mm. say yes. No, he has to say no. Do it sooner, much sooner,
3: hmm. so that the
4: builder and developer can move on because costs are associated with going through the process, and while they are invested in pursuing this project, they may not be able to pursue other projects. And the other thing that you mentioned, very is very critical. I mean, there is also people, knowledgeable people, um, who are arguing that why do we have immigration in Canada, as if our GDP or our economic productivity has been increasing per capita GDP has been the same or almost the same for many years the only growth in our economy is through the size of it and that size could only be increased if you have immigration and for that to happen to increase the labor force you really need to rely on it otherwise you see what is going on for many sectors like construction is and renovations you can't find trades and even for the construction of new homes in Ontario if you have about three hundred thousand homes under construction and you run into this supply constraint where you have land, maybe you have supplies, but you don't have labor. So you we really rely on immigration. And not just for construction, you walk into any engineering PhD lab in any university in Canada, from McGill University to University of Toronto, all the way to University of British Columbia, and you walk into an engineering lab and see who's doing the PhD, and you realize yeah. that most of the students doing engineering PhDs in Canada, creating immigration, are immigrants. And in fact, Statistics mm. Canada's All data shows that the first language of those who graduate with an engineering PhD in Canada do not have English or French as their first language. So I think people have to really realize before they start uh, saying things against immigration
0: You mentioned, mentioned earlier, martaza and these are my words, not you, yours. But that, uh, that it seems that the default position is that development is bad and uh, it's not good. It's not a positive thing anymore. Can you build smart? What does building smart look like? Um, and will the pandemic force this change?
4: I think the build, building smart means that you build communities that are uh, multi-multi-use, multiple um, that they, they are not just uh, uh, bedroom communities. There's a diversity of land users, people that they are conducive for people to walk and bike to destinations, especially retail, um, that they are um, higher density than single-family detached homes. I mean, there's a tremendous potential to build row housing and town housing still conducive for families. It cannot happen through condominiums, as we have seen the case that the bulk of construction in major urban centers uh, has been focused on condominiums, and low-rise housing has taken the back seat. But within low-rise housing, it doesn't necessarily have to be default single-family detached homes with low density. It can be mid to high, mild to high density with row housing, town housing. And there's also been a conversation about the missing middle, especially in places where land values are not very high, that you can build uh, not necessarily high-rise housing, but you can build larger size units in a low-rise setting um, or mid-rise setting. All of this could be done with the, with the um, attention to urban design, making sure that people can walk to destinations, making sure that we build in a way that people can travel by public transit. All of this is smart building. It's called new urbanism in some literature or, or planning profession. It's not that we don't know how to do it or we, we don't have prototypes to look at. It's just that we have to get on with it rather than just speaking about it.
0: You know, you bring up a good point, Mertaz. It seems when we build, especially around larger centers, whether it's a Toronto, a Hamilton, an Ottawa, uh, or even a Kitchener-Waterloo, it seems to be um, a bedroom community of that city. Is that the right approach, or should we be building these centers as their own little independent hub and then linking them all together?
4: Exactly, we need to build self-reliant communities where people and they are not. They shouldn't be single-purpose or single land-use communities um, like typical suburbs where there's no retail. And even if you have to buy a um, um, eggs or a carton of milk, you have to get into your car and drive. Yeah. That is not conducive, and that's nobody should advocate for it. What we really need are mixed land-use communities where uh, there are diversity of land uses. There's retail. There's some office. There's schools. Kids don't need to be transported to schools in cars. They should be able to walk or bike, or the parents should be able to do so. So comprehensive communities where where mobility is not auto-centric, where retail is not far off. And now that we have seen that people have brought home uh, work, uh, maybe designing homes with the understanding that part of your home is work now. You don't really have to be in in in, 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 in long commutes, either by transit or by car, spending two hours of your day um, commuting to and from work when you can actually fire up that laptop at home and answer the same email that you would have answered a year, an hour later after getting to work so there's so much of work that could be done and now it's not necessarily true for everyone but i think i mean and, and the literature suggests that about 30 percent of the workforce could be working from home 32 and the recent before con uh, before the pandemic about 12% of the people reported that they were working from home and at the height of uh, restrictions mobility and, and and assembly restrictions um that number went up to about 40% but i think between 12 and 40% that number could be 20% or 30% people of the workforce working from home and that is where i think the design of tomorrow's home should be where that that you have reliable um, infrastructure not just roads but also um, uh, Wi-Fi and and Internet so that people have reasonable download and upload speeds. A lot of Canada, I mean, outside of major cities, people don't realize that mm. you may have a one gigabit download speed in Toronto or Vancouver or Montreal, but as soon as you are Within 40 minutes of a city, you realize those download speeds go down from 1 gigabit to 15 megabit per second. Yeah. And upload speeds go down from 20 megabit per second to 1 megabit per second. So so we need to invest not just in brick and mortar, but we have to invest in our digital infrastructure to make that future possible where people can live and work and they, they do not necessarily have to add commutes to their to their everyday life. It's not that everyone should work from home all the time, but they can work from home two days out of a week or three days or one day out of a week. There has to be flexibility available to people so that they are able to arrange their lives and, and find that work, uh, live and work-life balance. Um, and, and it doesn't, shouldn't come at a cost that they feel squeezed because housing consumes most of their disposable income.
0: Murtaza Hader with us, Professor Ted Rogers, School of Management, Ryerson University. Murtaza, a fascinating discussion, talking about home affordability post-pandemic and what uh, new communities will look like moving forward. Murtaza, thanks for the time. Be well. My pleasure. Thank you kindly. Take care. 155 News on the way.